Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Welcome. With Michael Smirkanish. Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. As a serious XM and CNN host, I'm known for speaking, but frankly, I read for a living. I need to know what to say, and so I consume over two dozen newspapers and websites daily. I read opposing views and studies and court cases and orders and op-eds just so I can discuss current events on radio and television. But my favorite reading? Books. Old school. And my favorite interviews are with book authors. Book Club with Michael Smirconish is now in session. I've already said to my listeners, I've just finished reading the definitive book on September 11, Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. Don't take my word for it. Listen to these words. Of the raft of books that are marking the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and its aftermath, few are likely to be as meticulously documented as fluidly written or as replete with riveting detail as Peter Bergen's The Rise and Fall of Osama Bin Laden. It's a page-turner that weaves back and forth between the man and the terrorist, providing poignant glimpses of key figures and carefully chronicling all the missed opportunities, ignored warnings, and strategic blunders of the United States. I concur. And this is Peter Bergen. Peter, congratulations. It's terrific. I've had the privilege of interviewing you many times over the last 20 years. Uh, You really brought it home in this manuscript. Thank you, Michael. 
So the book opens. I, I'm I'm kind of torn because there's there's so much that I want to ask about, and I know we're limited on time, but I think I'll approach it this way. The book opens with you taking us into the Abbottabad compound and telling us what life was like for bin Laden in the years that he resided there. He has multiple wives. It's a complicated picture. Some who are living in the compound never even put eyes on him. True? Yeah. So there were 27 people living in the compound, uh, by my count, um, and uh, 16 of bin Laden's family. So three wives and uh, his uh, 11 kids and grandkids. And then there were 11 members of the bodyguards and a family and members with the with the two bodyguards. One of the wives of the bodyguards didn't know that one of the people living on the compound was Osama bin Laden. So he he was hiding from people who even live with him. Uh, He was being exceptionally careful. Uh, In those last weeks of his life, uh, we have a bin Laden family journal that was only released at the end of the 2017 by the Trump uh, administration. It really kind of documents day by day what the bin Laden family were thinking and, and doing. In particular, uh, bin Laden's conversations with his two oldest wives. Listeners and, and, and viewers might be surprised that bin, two of bin Laden's oldest wives both had PhDs and were highly educated. And uh, bin Laden really relied on them uh, for sort of strategic advice to help him write his speeches, to think through big problems. He was going to extraordinary lengths to protect his whereabouts, not the least of which was burning the trash. I I didn't know uh, that via one of his wives, he had four of them, right? Four wives? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, four wives, three of them were with Three him of whom compound. were in the compound. Okay. And with the three that were in the compound, he had multiple children during the time that he was in the compound. And just by way of illustration of the lengths to which they were going to to protect the secrecy, uh, they wanted to make sure that the wife then delivering wouldn't speak so that the cover story was what? She was deaf and dumb. Right. I mean, why would a a woman that was clearly from the Middle East be having kids in a relatively obscure provincial Pakistani city? Uh, and so to cover that up, um, they used false identity papers for this wife. This was the youngest wife who was 20, um, 28 at the time bin Laden died uh, or was killed. She had two kids when they were living in Abbottabad, Pakistan, and two other kids uh, when they were wandering other, around other parts of Pakistan. So, yes, the cover story, you say, Michael, was that she was deaf uh, and mute. Um, and that would prevent any awkward questions about why this woman who clearly wasn't a local, was having these kids in these Pakistani cities, uh, you know, thousands of miles from the Middle East. He's living in Abbottabad in that compound, and and he is nevertheless a voracious consumer of media to the extent that he can get his hands on it. He has a digital library, and I guess this speaks well of his respect of your knowledge of him. Included in that digital library was one of your books. Yeah, I mean, he he was a voracious consumer of anything to do with al-Qaeda or bin Laden. He had uh, reports from the Rand Corporation. He had congressional testimony. He had an audio version of one of my books. He had he was a big fan of Michael Scheuer. Uh, Michael, you'll recall, ran the Alex Station, which was the bin Laden unit before 9-11, who wrote a lot of very critical books about American foreign policy when he left the uh, CIA. He had a uh, Bob Woodward books. You know, he had quite a library. He even had one book that claimed that 9/11 was an inside job, which of course Bin Laden himself <laughs> knew was completely wrong. 
uh, since he was the mastermind of the operation. So he, he was reading a lot, but the way he got those uh, materials was he was not connected to the internet. Everything was being transported to him on thumb drives by his bodyguards who would go and kind of like download newspapers, books, reports. Uh, I presume he must have tasked his bodyguards to go and get specific things or people bought things to him that, that might be of interest to him. Uh, so he, you know, he had a lot of time on his hands. So he was, he was reading and he was also writing these very long memos. And of course, one of the you know, a key source for the book is the 470,000 files that were released by the Trump, the Trump administration in full that were recovered at the compound by the U.S. Navy SEALs, uh, which really provide a good roadmap to kind of how he was thinking, what he was doing, how he was trying to control his organization, um, both and sort of both on a personal level and also uh, kind of on an organizational level, what he was doing. Peter, what most surprised you when you got your hands on those files? What is it that you, Peter Bergen, who had met bin Laden, who had interviewed bin Laden, who toured, and we'll come to that, the Abbottabad compound before it was raised. What took your breath away in looking at that documentation? I mean, I was very, I was surprised by the extent to which he was reliant on his two older wives to do his writing, his thinking for him. Uh, as I mentioned, that two of them had PhDs. One was in child psychology. The other one was in Quranic grammar. His oldest wife, Um Hamza, is eight years older than Bin Laden. She had been out of his life for a decade after 9-11. She lived under house arrest in Iran. On February 15, 2011, a few months before he was killed, uh, she, she suddenly reappeared in the compound, and Bin Laden was delighted. And he sent her these letters, sort of almost lovelorn letters, telling her how excited he was that she was coming back and volunteering to come and pick her up 300 miles from the compound, which would have been a big risk for him. In the end, he didn't do that. She made her own way to the compound. But the Bin Laden Family Journal recounts these uh, long sessions before dinner, after dinner, where they talked about the events of the Arab Spring and how Bin Laden should uh, re respond to it. Because, you know, the fact that, you know, these revolutions were happening around the Middle East was tremendously exciting to Bin Laden. But he was well aware that no one was holding aloft banners of Bin Laden. Al-Qaeda wasn't involved. His ideas weren't involved. And so he, he was turning to his oldest wives and also his adult children to have these discussions about what should he say? How should he present himself so he could suddenly become a leader of the Arab Spring? Now, this, of course, was a huge delusion. Uh, the people involved in the Arab Spring, particularly at the beginning, were liberals or members of the Muslim Brotherhood, a group that is involved in conventional politics that Al-Qaeda despises. Uh, but, you know, they were having these long sessions to say, you know, they... they Bin Laden's family members saw him as a world historical figure, even though he was becoming less and less relevant. And they thought if he delivered a speech, he could kind of take control of the events of the Arab Spring in Tunisia, Egypt and Libya, where these revolutions were going on. You walk us through Osama bin Laden's life. You paint the full picture. And of course, the events that transpired with the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, 1979, uh, United States and bin Laden temporarily on the same side of the fence. I've always wondered whether there was direct linkage between the CIA and bin Laden during that time period. You seem to have the answer to that question. What is it? There's just no evidence for it, Michael. And we're now four decades after the end of that war uh, and no evidence has emerged. There's no document. There's no uh, person who's come forward. It, it, it would also kind of defy common sense. The CIA wanted to win the war in Afghanistan. And there are 175,000 Afghans. That's the minimum estimate on the battlefield at any moment. And, and at the most, there were 300 Arabs under bin Laden's uh, kind of command 
on the battlefield. They had no impact on the war. So the CIA, uh, a, uh, CIA officers were not allowed to go into Afghanistan because it would have been a huge propaganda victory for the Soviets if one of them was captured. B, they dealt with uh, the Pakistani intelligence service when they were arming the Afghan warlords. Uh, they didn't deal with the Afghans themselves. They certainly didn't deal with uh, the Arabs like bin Laden who came to the Afghan war. And th those Arabs had their own sources of funding, whether it was bin Laden's own personal money or uh, donations that bin Laden was very successful in, in, in getting from interested parties in Saudi Arabia. So th there's no evidence that uh, the CIA had no idea who bin Laden was, by the way, Michael. I mean, it wasn't until 1993 that Gina Bennett, a young analyst at the State Department, wrote the first official account warning of this guy, Osama bin Laden. She was a junior analyst at the Intelligence Bureau at the State Department, and she began became very interested in this phenomenon. Uh, but it's uh, the first time the government warned internally about bin Laden. It was a classified document. Uh, was in 1993. So they simply had no idea who he was until four years after the war against the Soviets had ended. By the way, you referenced Gina Bennett and her work throughout the course of the book. And I wondered, as I read, is she the analyst who was a focal point of the movie Zero Dark Thirty? Zero Dark Thirty uh, presented itself as a work of history, but really was a drama. <laughs> and, you know, Gina Bennett, um, is still at the, still at the CIA. She's attached to the National Counterterrorism Center. Um, the the character in Zero Dark Thirty, played by Jessica Chastain, is kind of a composite of different people, uh, and and it's certainly not Gina Bennett. Uh, Gina, uh, you know, joined the uh, State Department in 1988, um, and and is still at the at the agency. Um, and there might be an element or two of her in that character, but that character. Um, it, it isn't is a composite, um, and 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 the film itself, I I don't think it's a particularly reliable guide to actually what happened. It's it's Hollywood, right? <laughs> Peter, how close did we come to getting him before September 11? Well, that is a good question. Um, you know, the, there was a big, uh, you know, that I think the, there's a kind of agreement that there was a in in 1999 there was a group of uh, Emiratis who are hunting bustards in the deserts of uh, southern Afghanistan. There's a particular kind of bustard that's regarded as uh, an aphrodisiac if you eat it. Uh, and Gulf princes like to hunt this bustard. And Bin Laden was visiting this camp for a period of a week or so, going back and forth, having dinner with these guys. And I think that was probably the time you could have, the most likely time that you could have taken a shot at him because collateral damage would have been relatively limited. It wasn't in a city. Uh, a lot of the other times Bin Laden was in a relatively large cities when there was information about his whereabouts. The shot wasn't taken. There was a concern that the people in this camp were members of the Emirati royal family, uh, a really a, a legitimate concern since there was a military C-130 Emirati plane near this camp. The shot was never taken. It seems that Bin Laden probably was there. Uh, but, uh, you know, folks at the White House sort of said, the intelligence wasn't good enough. And in the pre-9-11 era, you know, there was, you know, it, it was pre-9-11. Bin Laden uh, hadn't carried out the 9-11 attacks. And of course, at the other time, it was the Battle of Tora Bora after 9-11. And there was plenty well, of information. Go ahead. Well, I, I was going to say that, you know, w the world didn't yet recognize what we had on our hands with Bin Laden, but some people did. And I thought that your treatment in the book of Michael Scheuer was very fair and very favorable. It was Scheuer who ran what he named the Alex Station. It was his job in that time period 
uh, to track bin Laden. He was an advocate for taking bin Laden out. I I will tell you, Peter, that for a a long time period, he had been a frequent guest on my radio program, a couple of times on television as well. And and then we kind of lost touch and he seemed in some respects to go off the deep end. Um, But when it comes to bin Laden, he seems to have been right. Yeah, he would tell people this guy's going to kill thousands of Americans. And he was constantly writing notes to various people at the agency saying, you know, we're going to regret not taking action. This is before 9-11. And and, and Troyer was shuffled off the CIA library in a kind of make work job uh, because of his zealotry about bin Laden. But he was absolutely right. And and, and Mike Troyer is a a very smart guy, you know, a Ph.D. in, in history. Um, and he was completely right about bin Laden. Uh, but so you know, there was, go ahead. I was going to say in the, in the same way that, that he was sounding an alarm much closer in time. And, and something that I learned from the book is that you on August 17, 2001, I emailed John Burns, the New York Times leading foreign correspondent. Why were you emailing him? What message did you want to convey? Well, I'd met John in Yemen when we were both reporting on the USS Cole attack, which was carried out by Al Qaeda, and, and when I was reporting on bin Laden. And, you know, John um, had won, I think, three Pulitzer Prizes and, um, you know, was kind of the dean of foreign correspondence at the New York Times. And I was very concerned about this audio tape that was uh, available in um, password protected uh, Al Qaeda linked sites. Uh, and the, 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 the this videotape showed that. It was a two hour videotape and bin Laden was making all these threats on these videotapes. And he was saying that the, the attack on the USS Cole was just the beginning. And, and I, I thought it was part of a pattern where bin Laden uh, warned of upcoming attacks and presaged an attack. And, and I wrote to John Burns laying out, I wrote him a four page letter, which I briefly quote in the book, sort of explaining why I thought this was something that he should report on. Um, you know, in, in the New York Times, and he wrote a piece and the Times had an editing dispute and they only put the version of the piece in the newspaper on September 12, 2001, unfortunately, after the attack had happened. Uh, but the, the title of the piece was Bin Laden, I think it was on videotape, Bin Laden charts a violent future was the title of the piece. Um, so, you know, you didn't, the point, the reason I put the anecdote in the book is, you didn't need access to classified information in the summer of 2001 to, to have a pretty good suspicion that something was well, brewing. But it also corresponds with the PDB that was delivered to President George W. Bush uh, in Crawford. Um, I know I'm moving fast. You raise questions. I should say you raise some doubt as to who among the SEAL Team 6 members actually killed him in one of the footnotes uh, to the book. The point man, O'Neill, and Bissonette were the first three SEALs to assault bin Laden's bedroom. O'Neill has since claimed that he was the shooter who killed bin Laden. Others on the raid team told the author, you, that O'Neill's account wasn't accurate. The To determine definitively which of the SEALs killed bin Laden is not possible. Can you just briefly explain why? I think there's a few things here, Michael. One... This was, uh, you know, uh, a raid against the world's most wanted man. And there's a lot of adrenaline coursing through everybody's uh, veins Two, uh, the, there's no light on in, in the whole neighborhood. And uh, all the seals are on night vision goggles. Uh, three, uh, you know, the, so there's there, there is some dispute about what happened in that room. I, I, I can't really resolve it. All I can say is O'Neill has claimed that he was the man who took the, fa- the, fi- the fatal shot. The point man uh, has never come forward and will never come forward. Uh, a, a lot of his colleagues think that he uh, 
probably uh, fatally wounded bin Laden uh, with with a first shot up the stairs. Uh, Matt Bizanet, who has come forward publicly, um, says that he and O'Neill kind of finished off bin Laden when he was already on the floor. When I talked to Admiral McRaven about this issue, he, he in a sense, he sort of said, look, it doesn't really matter who took the final shot. This was a team effort, uh, not just the SEAL teams, but well, everybody who served in Afghanistan was kind of driving towards this uh, m- moment uh, on the SEAL teams. Uh, there were 24 men on that raid, including a Pashtun, uh, somebody who spoke the local language, a, a dog. They, everybody everybody had a, had a role to play. Uh, so McRaven's view is, I think, that it ultimately doesn't really matter because... I, I, I agree with that. Look, to me, they're all heroes, but I, it, I'd be less than honest if I didn't say that it was a... It was a matter of curiosity. Soon after SEAL Team 6 killed bin Laden, you were, correct me if I'm wrong, the only Western journalist to tour the Abbottabad compound before it was raised by the Pakistanis. What most stands out in your mind about that experience? I didn't know if they were going to raise it, uh, which they did two weeks later. I mean, the first thing is that it allowed me to get a sense of what happened on the night of the raid. There was, you know, there was... There have been Cy Hirsch, the investigative journalist, has claimed that it wasn't really a real raid, that this whole thing was kind of like the fake moon landing. Well, I mean, I saw evidence of an extremely violent, um, they killed, the SEALs killed five people on that compound. Bin Laden, his son, Harlid, two of the bodyguards and one of the bodyguards' wives. The place was a total wreck. Uh, evidence of a lot of, and evidence of a lot of, uh, you know, firefights. And then also, um, you know, the other thing that struck me is how, um, run down and shabby the compound was. Bin Laden always lived, uh, you know, he had, um, he came from a very rich family, but he always lived like a pauper. Um, he was kind of a miserly guy. Uh, these people were not living large. They were living, you know, it was a very crude uh, kind of uh, furniture. Um, the, the whole place, it seemed uh, run down. And, and that wasn't surprising to me because Bin Laden, when he lived in Sudan, when he lived in southern Afghanistan, he always he lived in places without air conditioning, he, he, even without running water. He seemed to really want to live this life of, um, you know, kind of abjuring any kind of modern luxury. Um, and, and, so that, and, that telling, was, and telling his sons, yeah, I may have millions, but you're never touching any of it. Right. When one of his sons went to Bin Laden and said, you know, I'd like to get married and get some money. Bin Laden said, why don't you just, I'm not going to give you anything. Um, you know, my money is for the jihad. You need to go out and, you know. Uh, farm land. raise crops and do some farming and raise some right. of your own money, then get married. A, f- a final thought, if I may, I have just a minute left with Peter Bergen. The book is called The Rise and Fall of Osama Bin Laden, and it is excellent. I'm so glad that you closed the loop on Muhammad al-Qahtani, because one of my favorite aspects of September 11 is the story of Jose Melendez Perez, an astute CBT officer who kept out uh, Customs and Border Protection, CB, whatever the hell the acronym is, kept out of Orlando a month before September 11, Mohammed Al-Qahtani, the presumed 20th hijacker, who later is captured at Tora Bora and at Guantanamo, and you explain this, is a key piece of evidence to take us to one of the couriers who leads us to bin Laden's door, meaning but for Jose Melendez Perez being so astute at his job a month before September 11, there could have been added muscle on Flight 93. Can you, in 30 seconds, tell me anything about Katani? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. Look, Flight 93 could have flown straight into the U.S. Capitol. That was the plan um, with a fifth uh, hijacker and Katani was turned back. And I, I think you're absolutely right. It's one of the great sort of what ifs. I mean, luckily, uh, he was turned away. Uh, he did uh, deliver important information about um, the Kuwaiti, the courier. Uh, he did that in Guantanamo. He was subjected to some coercive interrogations. I um, so there was, you know, the people wanted to defend the coercive interrogation program. Qatari uh, is sort of evidence for uh, get, eliciting useful information, but the CIA also interrogated five other uh, of Al Qaeda members who were senior members of Al Qaeda and used coercive interrogation techniques and those produced either misleading information or false information. So right. uh, that I, I raise it only I I raise it only to praise Jose Melendez Perez, who never got his just due. Peter Bergen, the book's tremendous. Thank you so much for writing it, investing all of that time, and for your willingness to be here discussing it. Thank you, Michael. Wish you all good things. Uh, the book's great, ladies and gentlemen. The book is tremendous. Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the Sirius XM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Tuesdays and Fridays. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.